much. Um, if you're new here tonight, um, my name is Lydia. I'm the curate here. And um, we're beginning this evening um, a series on the Ten Commandments that's going to uh, take us through to uh, just before Christmas time. Um, it's going to be deep, it's going to be interesting, and hopefully it's going to be really, really practical. And um, I think me and Tim just want to say that it'll be a great series to invite people along to. Um, they're quite standalone topics, but they tell us of the heart of God, um, and they tell us so much about who we are. So do have a little think about who you might like to um, invite along. But, cool. I'll read scripture, and then we'll pray. So, Deuteronomy, chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, and that's page 177. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord, because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up the mountain." And he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Amen. So, Father, we thank you that you're so good. We thank you your word is deep and true and inherently, inherently alive with all that you are, that it is living and active. And, Father, as we approach Scripture now this evening, would you open our hearts and minds to all you have for us? And will we go away from this place changed for the sake of your world? Amen. Amen. Um, so this sermon series is essentially going to land in um, Deuteronomy chapter 5, but it's also worth reading Exodus when you've got some time, um, especially at chapter 20, which has the Ten Commandments in it also, and the chapters around it, because that explains the narrative. And um, Deuteronomy is an extraordinary book. Um, it's presented to us as the words of Moses entirely, and it entirely takes place on one day. And the Israelites have been walking around the desert for 40 years, and they're standing on the edge of the plains of Moab, and they're looking at the promised land, and Moses gets up to speak. He gets up to envision them. He gets up to remind them of who they are in God and all that God has for them. And Deuteronomy um, is known as the hinge of the Old Testament, the kind of critical part of the Old Testament because it looks backwards. So Moses is looking backwards to all that's gone before um, in the patriarchs such as Abraham, um, in the events of Israel, um, their time in slavery, the rescue um, from Egypt, their 40 years in the desert, their receiving of the commands um, at Horeb, the covenant that God gave them. But it's also looking forward it's God saying through Moses, actually, this is what it's going to mean to be a people with a land, and this is how you're going to flourish. It's looking forward to um, all that's going to come in the rest of the Old Testament, and um, the prophets, the uh, books of history. And actually, most importantly, it's looking forward to the person of Jesus. Because when Jesus steps on the scene in Matthew 5, one of the first things he says is, I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. 
And we approach all of this stuff with New Testament eyes, knowing um, who Jesus is, knowing all that he has done for us on the cross, all he's called us into, and knowing that actually these laws, these Ten Commandments are good and they're for our freedom, and he has fulfilled them. And we walk them out in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what Moses is doing is he's reflecting and he's envisioning and he's putting some questions before the Israelites. And actually, because God's word is eternal and because we're human and our nature doesn't change, he's putting some questions to us. So specifically um, for the Israelites, um, he's sort of saying, what are the lessons that you've learned in slavery in the desert? What are you going to need in this promised land? Um, and he's really honing this because in verse 3, he says, It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. Because this generation that is about to go into a promised land is actually a younger generation. They're a generation mainly who has been born in the desert. So it was actually their mothers and fathers who were there when the Ten Commandments were first given, when the covenant was first made. But Moses is saying, this hasn't changed. This is for you. And God is saying to us today that this hasn't changed and this stuff is for us right now, 2018, Parsons Green. And it shows us how to live well in the land. And Moses is saying, how will Israel flourish? But at a deeper level, how will anyone flourish? How do we flourish as a people? And the first challenge is to do with the culture around Israel. So the culture around Israel, the land that they're about to go into, is full of the Canaanites. And the Canaanites have got loads of gods. That's why it's, you shall have no gods. Little G there, not a big G for big God. Um, you shall have no gods before me. And actually their main god is the god of Baal, and he's the god of sex and money and wealth and egotism which is kind of like the gods of our culture, if we're honest, not much has changed. And what Moses is saying, what the Lord is saying through Moses is that actually they mustn't be absorbed by the culture around them, that they are to be a distinct people, a people who are distinct for the Lord their God. And that's our first challenge as church, that actually that's what God whispers over us, that we're called to be a distinct people who are not absorbed by the culture around us. Because if we just take on the culture, we become the culture. And the church throughout the ages has fought this battle. The Israelites fought it. And every time they absorbed the culture, every time they became like the culture around them, they found that they didn't worship God and they found that injustice was rife. And ultimately for Israel, that ended up in the exile. Then they did return from exile and rebuilt and all of that. And then Jesus came and brought the deepest, truest freedom that is possible. But throughout the ages, throughout church history, whenever the church has become too like the culture around it, the church hasn't flourished because we are the people of God and we're called to be distinct. And if you read the New Testament, that is just a train that runs through. Jesus, Paul, Peter, the language they use is that we're strangers and aliens, we're foreigners. Hebrews 11 talks of all these guys who did this crazy stuff for God, who were men and women of faith. And it just says they were too good for this world. 
We're made for the new creation. We're made for something more. And we're to be distinct. That's the first challenge. And then the commandments are so good because they show us who God is and they show us who we are. And they show us that our God is both transcendent and eternal and the great I am and that he's deeply, deeply relational and he knows us by name. And you can feel this just by reading verse six. So verse six, I am the Lord your God. So I am I am is the transcendent, eternal name for God. Actually, when Moses first meets God in the burning bush, chapter 3, verse 14, what happens is that God says to Moses, I am who I am. Enough said. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am who I am. And Jesus, when he's declaring who he is to disciples, to the Jewish culture, to the world around him, that's exactly what he picks up. John 8, 58. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. So our God is God. He is the one true God. He is the author of life. But in all his majesty and all his extraordinary reality. He's deeply, deeply relational. He's completely different to these other gods. He's not distant. And so the verse moves on to say, I am the Lord your God. And the word there is this Hebrew word, Elohim, Yahweh. It's the intimate covenant name for God. It's God saying, I am with you. I am the Lord. I am your closest friend. When Jesus Christ, Abba, Father, when Paul writes in Romans 8, Galatians 6, Abba, that intimate, intimate cry where we in Christ can call God our Father, our closest friend, the love of our life. That's what it's getting at. God is saying, I am. But my true, true majesty is not afraid to stoop. And my true majesty is eternally and intimately involved in my creation and in the lives of each and every one of us. I am the Lord your God. And the commandments, this one particularly, they go on to tell us of the sovereignty and the goodness of God and the reality of who we are in relation to God. So, verses six to seven. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. He's sovereign. He's completely in charge. He's done all those miracles with the parting of the Red Sea. He's taken his people out of slavery and he's restoring them and he's giving a land to them. All that they're longing for, he is fulfilling but he's the potter and we're the clay. Isaiah puts it another way, Isaiah 64 verse eight. Yet you, Lord, are our father, that intimate, intimate reality. We're the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. That's the reality of the commandments, the central axis, that actually he's the potter and we're the clay. Um, I was trying to um, come up with an illustration for this. 
and I thought of IKEA flat pack furniture, which is both my love and my nemesis. So this is my um, fabulous draining board, because I don't have a dishwasher. Um, and when I got this, good old IKEA, it had like 27 billion nuts and bolts to it. And you know what IKEA's like, it's a nightmare. Um, and I'm not very good with um, rules or detail. So I'm not very good at putting IKEA flat pack furniture together. So I attempted to put it together and it ended up kind of like that and it didn't work. Um, and I got a friend around who's much better with detail and he got the instructions out and he followed Mr. IKEA and he put it together. And here stands my draining board, doing exactly what it should do, flourishing as a draining rack, one might say, two-tier, as you see. Because um, actually, guys, we're a bit like this draining rack. We're the clay. And you know what? If we let God put us together, all the nuts and the bolts, he knows how he's made us. And when we follow his way and we let him put us together, we begin to flourish. But actually, you you know, I take on board Lydia's world of autonomy and just try to do it my way. It just all ends up a bit skew if and falls apart. Actually, we're the clay. We're a bit like this draining board. And he's the potter. And so he speaks truth into our lives. And what he's saying in the commandments, we sometimes, I think, when we read the commandments, we're like, oh my goodness, laws, God being really boring and being like, thou shalt not, and all of that. It's not thou shalt not. It's thou shall be free. We become totally, totally free when we do it his way because he's the potter and we're the clay and he knows. He knows how we're made. He knows how we're going to flourish. He's simply saying in the commandments, I know how I've made you. Walk out this stuff and you're going you're gonna to fly. You're going to do exactly what you were made to do. And that's what's going on. And the baseline of it all is worship. And, and Tim will unpack that a bit more next week as we look at commandment two. But they're commandments of worship. Because he's the only one who is worthy of praise because he's the potter. Um, it's the Job stuff, actually. You know, as Job goes through his trials and all of that, and he, he sits before the Lord and doesn't understand what's going on. And then God's response is, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? He's the great I am. He's transcendent. And so it's most, uh, it's most basic level. We follow God's commands because he's worthy of praise. He's worthy of our worship. And that's what the heart of worship is. The heart of worship isn't, in one sense, us coming and singing these songs together, although that's really, really good and we must do it. The heart of worship is giving our lives over and saying on a Tuesday afternoon, actually, Lord, I look to your ways, understand that I'm a flipping draining rack and, you know, I'm going to do this because I know that you know me and I know your ways will cause me to flourish. He knows our makeup. And God's not egotistical, okay? He doesn't demand our worship or anything like that because he needs a massage and a bit of a kind of like security boost. God is completely and utterly secure. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit caught up in the whole company of heaven are totally, totally secure. But God loves relationship. 
And he loves to create and he loves us. He welcomes us into this life of worship. He welcomes us to be the clay, to walk out his ways. He knows our makeup. He knows that we were made for a relationship with him and we were made to worship him. Mike Pilavachi just puts it like this. To be a human is to be a worshiper. And when we stop worshiping God, we don't stop worshiping. We worship anything. God knows how he's made us. And he knows that we've got a God-shaped hole and that we will always worship something. And actually, either we worship him, the source of all goodness and mercy and justice and compassion, the author of life, and we move into freedom and are who we're made to be, or we end up worshiping something else, other gods. Money, sex, power, ourselves even. That's why it's, you shall have no other gods before me. Not because God's capricious or insecure or anything like that, but because he made us and he knows how he has made us. And we do our best when we walk in his ways and we worship him and him alone. Um, Paul Tillich, he's a 20th century theologian who can be a bit wacky, but sometimes says some good stuff, says this, your God is that reality which elicits from you your deepest feelings and your ultimate concern. And that's the second challenge for us this evening, guys, actually. What is our ultimate concern? What do we, what do we worship? We all have our, our stuff but it is, is it in its rightful place? Is it under God, the great I am, the Lord our God who is with us, who brings us again and again out of slavery? So just to get practical as we kind of move into to land, um, what are these other gods? around us. Um, I'm sure some of you have come across this, but if you haven't read it, um, Tim Keller, Counterfeit Gods, that can be a book of the series. I hope that's okay, Tim. It's a great book, and it just tracks this stuff really well, really practically. Um, Do read it between now and Christmas. Um, And Tim's brilliant. Um, Just as I was sort of reconsidering it and stuff, I suddenly realized, actually, that um, we think that gods, or idols, as Tim puts it, um, are bad things. Most of the time, guys, they're not bad things. They're good things. They're just good things that we've given the wrong position in our lives. Because what happens is we turn a good thing into a kind of God thing. And God just wants to reposition stuff. Tim puts it like this. The human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. And just stop there, guys, because what happens is Satan whispers to us that actually what the church preaches is that, you know, money's a bad thing and sex is a bad thing and family's a bad thing and all of that. It's not true. God has called us into our careers. God has called us to have good and healthy sex lives within marriage. Um, God has called us to steward our marriage well. Okay, they're not bad things. It's just that. If we turn them into ultimate things, as Tim goes on, 
Our hearts deify, and that means to make God, them, as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. So these other gods, they haven't actually changed that much from um, the Israelite time of Baal, really, because at the end of the day, God knows how he made human nature. He knows what the clay is like. And so ultimately, it's still basically all under money, power, and sex. Um, Money. Materialism is like one of the struggles of our day, isn't it? And God wants us to enjoy his creation. We're just called to steward it well and to be free in it. Um, This is a really basic story, but a couple of weeks ago, um, I was um, in France. I'm on the board of trustees for this charity that's based in Madagascar. And we'd spent all morning... um, talking about some really, really, you know, awful stuff, famine and just just horrendous stuff that's going on in Madagascar at the moment. And then we came out for lunch and we were having our group photo. I've just got a new iPhone and I gave it to this woman to take a photo and she dropped it on concrete and the screen cracked. And I was like, and then I just knew, I was like, you have to be okay about this. You cannot have spent two hours talking about famine and have a meltdown because your iPhone's cracked. Do you know what I mean? Like, sometimes we have to just grab hold of a God perspective um, on those things. I'd love to say I was perfect in that. I don't think I was. Um, I was still a bit like, oh, my screen. Anyway. Um, sex. Um, I think our culture has told us two lies around sex and love at the moment. It's all the sexual freedom stuff. As I said before, within marriage, good thing. Um, but also, it's sold us this idea of Hollywood love, hasn't it? That we somehow we're going to find this perfect relationship and this one person is going to like redeem us and sort all our issues out. It's just nonsense. It's not how we're made. That one person, if God has called you to spend your life with them, will be brilliant. But you're going to need a whole host of other people. We're called to do it together as the body of Christ. Actually, we need to escape the distortion of of love and sex that our culture has um, spoken over us. Power. Work. Work is a bit of a god um, in our society, isn't it? You know, honestly, I mean, I'm I'm a vicar, and I find myself addicted to work. And that's ridiculous. But but we all do it, don't we? And we're always to be able to say, I'm just so busy, I'm so tired, I'm so busy, I'm so... And some of that is true, but it's like, it's a badge of honor, isn't it, to be knackered and overworked. (laughs) That's ridiculous. Actually, God wants us to put it into perspective because work is a good God-given thing. Genesis chapter two, the Lord placed the man in the garden to work his creation, but under him and in our freedom. And also under power, we've hit a really bizarre point in history, I think, in our sort of Western culture, at least, with the idealization and the kind of deification, the making of God of ourselves. I triumphs everything at the moment, doesn't it? And actually, yes, we were made in the image of God and we reflect, as a clay, we reflect the potter, but we're not God. And I, my personal autonomy and all my thoughts and feelings and desires don't get to trump everything else. Actually, they need to come under Jesus and they need to be worked out in reference to other people and their flourishing. So those are some of our our gods. So what on earth do we do with all of this? Well, firstly, we just, we know. We know that God is relational 
the Lord our God, and he loves us. He's also the great I am. He's a potter with a clay. He's intimately involved. That he's given us, thou shalt be free. And actually, commandments didn't begin in the Ten Commandments. Way back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, what did the Lord say to us? Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did we do? We ate of the tree and everything went a bit wrong. And then Israel. Okay, guys, here's some guidelines, some guidelines for life. So now shouts be free. And then Jesus, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, all he said to us. The rest of the New Testament, the epistles, the letters, the guidelines to churches, these are good things. They're not God wagging his finger at us. It's God saying, this is how you're going to work well. And as I said before, we read it all through New Testament eyes, just knowing that Jesus has saved us, that we're filled with the Spirit, that we're the church, and that he has fulfilled the law. And it's not about keeping rules and regulations. The world is full of good people who keep laws. I'm not suggesting that we run around not keeping laws. That's a very important thing to do. We need to obey the laws of our land. But what are we marked out by? We're marked out by being in him. We as church are marked out by a knowledge of the fact that we are the clay. We're in him. And we flourish in that knowledge. And then we walk this stuff out for a discipline of a kind of constant cycle of just reflection and repentance and rejoicing. So we reflect and we know when we've got it a bit wrong and we just go, okay, I put something above me and God. I'm going to prayerfully put it back in its rightful place and that's okay. Our lives are a constant eternal conversation with God. And Jesus has said it all. There's nothing you're sitting with in these seats that God can't see and can't and hasn't redeemed. Just bring it to him. Put it back under his lordship. And then I realized we do it with thankfulness. Actually, we take hold of the things that we hold most dear, the things that we, we just love and we're so thankful for. And then we just give it to God. And we say, thank you, God, for giving me that thing. So first challenge of all of this actually is to be distinct, not to be absorbed by the culture. The second challenge is just to say to ourselves, actually, what's, what's our ultimate concern? What are we worshipping? And the third challenge is to hold things lightly and to give thanks for everything that is good in our lives. Because if we give it back to God, if we thank him for it, it doesn't become an idol. It doesn't become another God. Um, so that's what we're going to invite you to do now, if that's okay. Um, can I invite everybody to stand? And we're going to um, hand over to Joe and Lou in a little while, and they'll lead us in some prayer ministry and things. Um, but there's something really specific that I thought it would be brilliant for all of us to do here. Um, Connor and the guys, perhaps you want to bring us some musical accompaniment. Um, the Holy Spirit is here and present. He comes not, yeah, he's right here with us. Um, so what I want to invite us to do is to think of the thing in our life that we hold most dear, 
that we are most thankful for. Just think of that thing. And then when you're ready, I'm sure you've all got that thing in your mind's eye, would you um, just come to the front and there's just um, a station on either side and just write that thing down on a post-it note and then you can fold it up or whatever you want to do with it and just pop it in a bowl and just give it, give it to God in an act of thanks and say, here you go, here's this thing that I hold most dear and I give it to you and I thank you for it and I know that you're Lord over my life. So yeah, just come along. Maybe the front row could go first and then we can all just sort of trail in and out.